Well, this morning we begin Peter's second letter. He wrote his first letter to the churches of Asia Minor around 65 A.D. because they were being attacked from without. The Christians were being persecuted for their faith. And Peter wrote to encourage them, to to build them up, to assure them that if they would do what was right, God would bless them. And in the end, if not before, vindicate them. If they would yield their rights to him and to others in obedience to him, God would see to it that right would prevail. Now Peter is writing a second letter. Around 67 A.D., because the churches were once again under attack, only this time it wasn't from without. It was from within. False teachers were invading the church and leading Christians astray. Now, due to the differing circumstances that prompted the second letter, it's quite different from his first that we just finished studying. So much so, in fact, that some have doubted that they both came from the same author. His, his first letter was reassuring and consoling and gentle with Christians who were being persecuted. His second letter is hard and direct and confrontational because he's dealing with false teachers and those who are listening to them. So the difference is to be expected. He's dealing with two entirely different situations. And he begins by immediately addressing the faith of those to whom he's writing, stressing that their faith was the same kind that the apostles had, or at least it should be. The gospel hadn't changed. And if their faith was different... It was because it had been distorted. Someone had pried it loose from its foundation. So it begins by taking them back to the foundation stone of our faith, the person of Jesus Christ. We begin the letter. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Central to our faith is an understanding of who Jesus is. So that is where Peter begins. And he gets right to the heart of the matter by clearly stating that Jesus is our God and Savior. 
Now, it's not often that we find Jesus referred to as God in Scripture. He was in our songs today. But in Scripture, he's usually referred to as the Son of God. And this is done intentionally, no doubt, to help us keep the triune nature of God in mind. That that God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And to try to somehow make that uh, comprehensible to us. But here Peter comes right out and states that Jesus is God. And he's not the only one to do so. Paul said the same thing in his letter to Titus. And in the prologue to the Gospel of John, he made it clear that Jesus, the Word, was God. And, of course, Thomas exclaimed, My Lord and my God, when he saw the resurrected Christ. So Peter's not alone in stating that Jesus is God. But you can count such references on one hand. Peter just wants to make sure everyone understands who Jesus is. That Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God. It is as simple and as complex as that. And as Peter makes clear, it is vital that we understand who Jesus is. Because the more knowledge we have of God and of Jesus who is God, the more we experience His grace and peace. His grace is demonstrated through his involvement in our life, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, in the past, in the future, and in the present. And his peace comes from the assurance that he is indeed in control. So let's get to know him and know him well. And if we look carefully at what Peter has to say about Jesus, in these opening four verses we discover seven things that are very important about Jesus. And the first is that the Jesus who some only think of as meek and mild is actually the God of power. The God of power. Peter speaks of his divine power. And the Greek word power is dunamis, from which we get the words dynamite and dynamic. Harold Fickett, who preached for years at First Baptist Church in Van Nuys, California, painted what I think is a perfect picture of the power of Christ using both of those words. He said, Christ, the God of power, has the spiritual dynamite to explode sin from the life of a person, and the dynamic to make his life worth living. That says it well. That says it well. When we were powerless over sin, he did something. He freed us. When we feel inadequate to deal with the challenges of life, he says, let me help. We need to go to the source of divine power. 
and make certain we're plugged in. You know, Paul was plugged into Jesus and could therefore exclaim, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And remember, he wasn't talking about winning the physical contest when he said that. He was talking about having the strength to face whatever life brought his way, good or bad. If our faith is the same faith the apostles had, faith in the God of power, we have access to the power that enabled them to do all that they did. We just have to use it. And don't worry. The God of power won't hold back on you because he's also the God of generosity. Peter tells us his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. The word translated granted means freely given. He does not hold back. And notice what he gives. Everything pertaining to life And godliness. That means Christ freely supplies all of our physical and spiritual needs. All things pertaining to life. Everything we need for life. All our physical needs will be met by Christ. If we will live in a trusting relationship with him. And keep our priorities right. You know, Jesus said... If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things, food, clothing, shelter, would be added to us. Even when suffering loss from hurricanes, he will make sure that those who trust him have everything they need pertaining to life. Peter also tells us that Jesus gives us everything we need to live godly lives. That means he's not given us an impossible task. He cleanses us and fills us and empowers us to do what he wants us to do. And he gives us everything we need to be what he wants us to be spiritually as well as physically. Do you notice, however, that I said he gives us everything we need, not everything we want. And sadly, when it comes to the physical side of things, we do have a tendency to let greed overpower need. Paul promised us in Philippians 4.19 that God would supply all our needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing promise. But he did not promise to give us everything we think we need. Now, by faith, I take that to mean if we don't have it, we don't need it. He may give it to us tomorrow, but that's not our concern today. In fact, Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow because he would supply tomorrow's needs tomorrow. Peter makes it clear we have a God of generosity who has called us by and to his own glory. And that makes Jesus the God of glory. 
Now, kids aren't the only ones who think life is boring. They're just the ones who say it. You know, for many, life has lost its sense of excitement, its glory. The thrill is gone. So they seek it in spectacular events and glitzy locations. But the glory of Christ makes anything the world might offer pale into insignificance. Listen to this description of our glorious Lord from the book of Revelation. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When John saw him, he fell at his feet like a dead man. He was overcome by the glory of the risen Christ. We may not see Christ as did John. But knowing that the God who loves us, who died for us, who lives within us, is the God of glory, is overwhelming. And knowing Him brings glory to our life. In fact, Peter actually told us in his first letter that someday the glory of Christ will be ours. We're going to share His glory for all eternity. Think about that when... The drudgery of life and gray days make you feel gloomy. Get to know the God of glory. And picture Him in your mind. It's impossible for life to be boring, to be dull, in the presence of a glorious God. And Jesus is that God of glory. And not only is he the God of glory, he's also the God of excellence. Peter said, he called us by his own glory and excellence. Excellence is an excellent word. Wasn't there a teen movie that talked about excellent all the time? Yeah, Bill and Ted. Yeah, oh, you all knew it. Yeah, okay. Couldn't remember when I was writing this, fortunately. But excellence is an excellent word. And in this context, it, it speaks of moral excellence. It reminds us that Jesus does things right. You know, things seem to go wrong in your life. You need to get to know the God of excellence, the God who does things right. 
Let him become the quality control agent in your life. Involve him in everything you do. Commit yourself to living as he lived and let him help you make right decisions. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. The God of excellence wants us to live excellently. And he will make sure we know how to do it. But don't just ask, what would Jesus do? Ask Jesus what you should do. Search his word to find out what he had to say about similar situations. Pray for his spirit to guide your thinking. Seek the counsel of godly brothers and sisters and then just do it. He's promised to help us make right decisions. And he can be trusted to do so because he's the God of promises. Now, speaking of Jesus' glory and excellence, Peter said, For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And the promises of Jesus are precious and magnificent. Even the word Peter chooses or, or chose for promises has special significance. It's not the ordinary word for promise that speaks of a private agreement between two parties. It's a word that speaks of a public announcement. And indeed, Jesus' promises aren't private agreements, but public announcements. They are available to anyone who will meet their conditions. And they're binding, not only because he said it, but because he said it in public in front of witnesses. We can be confident that he will do What he said he will do. And he has said some pretty fantastic things. Including the greatest of his promises that he's coming back. Listen to the way he promised that in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We have a God of precious and magnificent promises. We have a lot to look forward to. But his blessings aren't all to be had in the future. In fact, Peter says we have a God who shares himself. He put it this way. He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. We can actually share Christ's nature now. We can be what he is. 
He will actually come into our hearts and live his life through us if we will let him. As Athanasius of Alexandria, an early church father, put it, he became what we are so that he might make us what he is. You know, we actually become divine through the presence of Christ in our life. You are divine. Out in Kansas years ago, had an elderly gentleman. <laughs> he was probably my age. <laughs> His name was Oscar. And I was preaching how that that saints are what we are, that all Christians are saints. And I was riding with him in his pickup truck that week, and he says, I I don't get it. He says, don't call me Saint Oscar. (laughs) And, of course, then I always called him Saint Oscar. But I like the way he puts it here even better. We are divine. That doesn't mean we're God. It means God has indwelt us. Our body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are divine if you understand who Jesus is and how he wants to live his life through you. That is amazing. That changes everything. Everything indeed. That changes our perspective on everything. We see things differently. We share his nature. And we share it now because Christ is the God who delivers. Peter says we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He delivers us not only from the corruption of a sinful world. He delivers us from the lure of lust. You know, lust is huge. We know some very godly men who have been led astray by lust the last year or two. How sad is that? It's easy to get caught up in the business of the church and take our eyes off Jesus. We can't do that. We cannot do that. When we fill our life up with Him, the world loses its appeal. The lust of the world can't draw us away from Him. When we realize that in comparison to what we found in Him, they have nothing to offer. Understanding that is the best way. I think, to overcome temptation. It's not by saying, oh, no, I can't do that. I've got to deny myself. I've got to give that all up for my Lord. It's by recognizing that we already have something far better than anything the world has to offer. We overcome temptation 
by knowing something better. And if you know Jesus, if you really know Jesus, you've got the best there is. You know the God of power. The God of generosity. The God of glory. The God of excellence. The God of promises. The God who shares himself. The God who delivers. What more could you want? The recipients of Peter's second letter had apparently forgotten who Jesus really is and allowed themselves to be deceived into thinking the world and false teachers had something better to offer. There is nothing better. And nothing will draw us away from the faith we share with the apostles who walked with Jesus, who learned at His feet, who witnessed His resurrection, if we will always keep in mind who He really is. The question for us today is how well do you know our God and Savior, Jesus Christ? And are you willing to make the effort to get to know him better? That's our goal. To know more about Jesus. Okay? That's why we're here this morning. More about Jesus. Let me know. Let that be our prayer.